Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. Well, if you got your Bibles, Acts chapter Acts chapter nine, and we're gonna we're gonna jump in this morning. Uh, and as, as we continue our, our, our series, the mission and, and movement of, of God, uh, with, with five kiddos, uh, there are a, a lot of moving parts in the Brooks household. My wife says, amen. Uh, lots of moving parts, and, and there, is, uh, there is never a dull moment. If you've ever like hung at the Brooks house or, or uh, had a meal with us, uh, like we say amen when something like doesn't break or uh, anyway. So, so uh, you know what's not, you know what's not dull at the Brooks household uh, is, is bath time, okay? <laughs> bath time is, is never dull. Uh, ben and Ruthie, uh, they, they've gotten so much better, so much better. But uh, a year, year and a half ago, uh, like it used to be an all-out party, Okay. And so when Rue, I don't know, it was probably like a toddler, Ben, Ben was maybe four, uh, I, like I learned just because I'm a little bit of like, uh, I got some OCD going on, I would just stay in the bathroom. Like I just stay in the bathroom the whole time, make sure that they were soaped off, play with them for a little bit uh, before toweling them off. Because if I, if I left the room for 37 seconds, 37 seconds, there would be water on the walls there would be water, like, uh, like of course, the, like the, the, the rug would be soaked, the, like, the, the, the floor would be soaked. There'd be sto- stuff soaked that's not supposed to be soaked um, everywhere. And, and so when uh, they're, they're getting better, but when Ruthie and Ben, when they get in the bathtub, like, I, I'm, I'm just going to say this, like, there is a ripple effect, okay? There, there, is, there is a pretty massive ripple effect. Church. Hear me, when a person is washed and made clean by the transforming power of the gospel, there is a ripple effect of redemption. Amen? I don't think y'all are with me this morning. I know, I mean, it's the nine o'clock service. We're waking up. We're already looking forward to Thanksgiving. Hey, when you are washed and made clean by the transforming power of the gospel in Jesus, there is a ripple effect of redemption. Amen? Amen. In Psalm 107.2, David, the psalmist says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. But, but re- redeemed people, listen, they, they don't just give lip service to Jesus. Uh, like you, can, you can say that your life is centered on Christ, but, but talk... Talk is sometimes cheap. And, and here in Acts 9, the evidence of a redeemed life is revealed in the absolute 180 that we see in the life of Saul, who had become Paul. Y'all, Saul was never the same. Saul was, he was never the same. Christian, listen, if you have been redeemed 
If you have been redeemed from, uh, if Jesus has set you free from the penalty and the power of sin, if, if, if your hope is in the resurrection, if your hope is, is in the, the kingdom of God, listen, others should see some gospel, like the fruit of the gospel, uh, it, like on display in your life, not just, not just in your speech, but in your very life mission and purpose. Amen? Like others, others should see that. And, and, and so, listen, you, you say... You say you've encountered Christ. You say you've encountered Christ. You say that Jesus has set you free. But can others, check this out, can they see those streams of living water flowing out from you that Jesus talked about in John 7? This morning, as, as we examine the, the days immediately after Saul's conversion, what, what we're really seeing is a blueprint of what redeemed people do. What we're going to see is a blueprint of what redeemed people do. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of, uh, here, here's the challenge this morning. I'm going to hit some key points that are in the text, but then I'm also going to have to fill in some gaps as we go along because there's some things that Luke's not talking about that are going on in Acts chapter 9. But the first thing I want to tell you is redeem people, declare Jesus. Redeem people, declare Jesus. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, declare Jesus. That was pretty solid. No reprimand necessary, okay? I want you to look at your other neighbor and say, you ready? Redeem people. What do they do? They declare Jesus. Awesome. There's a story of a pastor and theologian, Derek Thomas. Uh, Derek Thomas shares a story of uh, trusting Christ after the fall break of his freshman year at his university. Uh, and and when, he, when he returned uh, for the spring semester of, of class, uh, uh, two or three weeks into the semester, one of his professors, who was widely known as a Christian, called him out in class. Called him, Derek Thomas, his, his professor called him out in class. He said, uh, Derek, I, I hear that you have become a Christian. Tell us about it. <laughs> Just stop for a minute. Just put yourself in, in, uh, in here. Like my, my introverts are like, oh, dear Jesus. <laughs> uh, but but he, he managed to, uh, he tells the story. He managed to just kind of nervously stumble his way through his testimony. But after the class, the professor pulled him aside and he said this. He said, uh, Derek, it's, it's important that we Christians nail our colors to the mast quickly. It's important that we Christians nail our colors to the mass quickly. Redeem people, church. They, they declare Jesus. So I, I want you to look at verse 19 uh, as, as well as verse 21. Uh, we'll look at 19 through 21, and then I'm going to skip over to 27 and 28. It says this. For some days he's, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately... He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, talking about Saul, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his, this name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? And then later in Jerusalem, in verse 27 and 28, it says this, 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. Declare, listen, redeemed people declare Jesus. The text in verse 19 tells us that, that for some days... Some days Saul remained in Damascus. And in verse 20, we see this dude, he doesn't waste any time. He does not waste any time. He immediately begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. So, so catch, the, catch the, the significance. Both both Jesus and Saul's ministry started off in the synagogue. And just like Jesus was doubted because he was, oh, you're just the son of Joseph. Saul's ministry, his, his testimony, his conversion was doubted as well because they said, oh, this is the one who uh, you, you caused havoc in Jerusalem on the church. But check this out. He, he, didn't, he didn't wait till he got the proper like spiritual merit badge, right? He didn't, he didn't wait till he had like, you know, enough Jesus badges on his vest. He didn't wait till he had a, a seminary degree. Saul declared Christ immediately. Amen? But he, he declares Christ immediately. And, and, and let, me, let me just clarify, like, are, are Christians called to a lifetime of growth and diligent study of God's Word? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does it take time to, to grow in Christian character, to, to grow in godliness? Of course. But here's what I want to say. Church, even the person who experienced the, the grace of God's forgiveness and transformation yesterday can give a clear testimony of the gospel today. Amen? I don't think y'all hear me this morning. It's interesting at the verse at the end of verse 20, Saul professes, and this is important, that Jesus is the Son of God. He confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Church, this is the only time that we see this title for, for Christ, for Jesus as the Son of God in, in Acts. Later. There, there's there's a, a, a quote from the Old Testament, but this is the only time Luke says it uh, directly. Listen, when I, when I was a kid, this term, this title was super confusing because for me, the only construct that I had for a son was like flesh and blood son, right? That, that, was, that was my only kind of construct for, for, for son, not, not image bearer. Not, not representative as it's used in Scripture. A.E. Harvey said it like this. He spoke of three aspects of Jesus' sonship. One was his perfect obedience to God. How was Jesus a son? Perfect obedience to God. Two was his being the ultimate revealer of God. How was Jesus the Son of God? He was the ultimate revealer of God. And three... Uh, A.E. Harvey says uh, he was a son in that he was the authorized agent of God. See, son of God, and we got we to gotta dig into some theology to understand what Saul, what, what Saul was saying. But son of God had massive, 
massive implications, distinctly messianic uh, implications. It was a messianic term. Uh, It harkened back to these Old Testament promises around the Davidic covenant and this future uh, son of David who would come and who would usher in the the long-awaited kingdom of God. And, And so, and we've seen these clues along the way in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 1, in Luke chapter 3, when the Father says, this is my beloved Son. That's what it was revealing. It was revealing this unique relationship and communion that Jesus had with the Father. And so from the jump, Saul proclaims Jesus not only as the long-awaited Messiah, but listen, but also as the very image bearer of God in human flesh. He's the very image bearer of God. See, the, the, the Apostle John, we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dive into some theology. Y'all good with that? Two people are good with that. Cool. The Apostle John wrote of, of he used this, this Greek word, monogenes, and it means the, the single, single of its kind, the only one. So, so when John said he was the only begotten of the Father, he uses this Greek word, monogenes, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S. And, and so uh, one of a kind, the only one. So, so not, listen, not created, not the ideal, spirit-filled, and enlightened man. See, in the fourth century, this, this is what the, uh, Arius uh, tried to poison the church with. Arius wanted to strip Christ of his deity. He wanted to strip Christ of his divinity. Church fam, this is, this is why the early church in the fourth century, they called the Council of Nicaea. This is why we have the Nicene Creed, because it was that creed where they said, no, Christ is the same substance and of the same essence of the Father. Amen? Christ, Jesus was co-eternal with the Father. Jesus was, was at creation. He was before creation. R.C. Sproul says this, Jesus was nothing less than God incarnate. Son of God. Why is this important? The Council of Nicaea was 1,700 years ago. 1,700 years ago, the church once and for all established as a non-negotiable the divinity of Jesus. And today, as you look around the cultural landscape of Christianity, listen, it's not just the cults like Mormonism that deny that Jesus is God. More and more, you have these movements within Christianity that are overemphasizing the humanity of Christ at the expense of his divinity. And so after 1,700 years of orthodoxy, Jesus is apparently like up for debate again because we are biblically and theologically illiterate. It's, listen, it's not a new teach. It's not a new teaching that Jesus was just an enlightened man. Like, oh my gosh, have you heard that? Yeah, <laughs> they were talking about it seventeen hundred years ago. 
It's, it's, not, it's not a new teaching that we can abolish the, the, this distinction between the Creator and His creation. And that we can, we can be little gods because, because we, have, uh, we, have, we have become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter talked about. These heresies are not new. Church, these false teachings were, were dealt with and demolished 1,700 years ago. And then in Acts 9, look, look, look at what's going on. Saul, listen. Saul lays it out clearly. And he says, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is Emmanuel. He is God in human flesh. Within days of being redeemed, Saul is boldly, boldly declaring Jesus before men. Amen? Like, I, I love, I love what the Lord is doing at Restoration. Over the last month, and we've seen several people that have come to faith in Jesus. They've been putting their faith in, in Jesus, right? I was talking to a, a friend of mine, Pastor Billy, who, who pastors in Southeast Houston, and he's a little crazier than me. He's got a little bit more profit in him. <laughs> but uh, he was telling me that uh, there was a, there was a, a gentleman who uh, trusted Jesus at his church. And he said, uh, during their invitation, his daughter came down the aisle and prayed to receive Christ, said, Jesus, save me from my sin. I believe you died on the cross. You rose. I want to follow you. And after the service, this gentleman came forward uh, to, to, to Billy after the service and said, hey, pastor, I, I really I wanted to trust Jesus today, but I didn't want to steal my my daughter's spotlight, you know, as she was walking the aisle to pray with you. And he said, brother, that's just an excuse. And he called the whole church back together. He called the whole church back together and had him give testimony that Jesus had saved him. I don't know if I'd do that, but here's the application. Here's the application. If you've been redeemed, do you say so? If you've been redeemed, man, do you say so? Second thing this morning. Redeem people, defend Jesus. Redeem people, defend Jesus. Once you look at your neighbor and say, defend Jesus. Jesus. Look at your other neighbor and say, defend Jesus too. Jesus. Awesome. Verse 22 says this. But Saul increased all the more in strength. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And then later, we we look in Jerusalem at verse 29, it says this. And he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Redeemed people defend Jesus. In verse 22, it, it reveals that when it reveals that Saul increased all the more in strength. Uh, church famous, it's not talking about his CrossFit regimen, okay? Uh, it, it's revealing that there was a spiritual power and, and authority that radiated from his life as he was faithful to share Jesus, amen? And, and the Jews 
much like they were with Stephen. I love this Greek word. It says they were confounded. They, they were confounded by, by Saul's life and his witness. In the Greek, that word means to cause such astonishment as to bewilder, but not just to bewilder, but also to dismay. So it's like they, they, they had nothing on him. They had no category to put him in. And then the end of verse 22 tells us that Saul was proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, now, I believe that there are two things in view with Saul's defense of Jesus. There are two things in, in view here. First of all, Saul knew the Old Testament. Saul absolutely knew the Old Testament. Uh, later, we're going to see in Philippians 3, he, he lays out his former religious track record. He, he even says he was from the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, this dude, listen, he was so holy, he, righteous. He was named after the first king of Israel. He was named after Saul. He, he said himself, man, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was trained up under the prestigious Gamaliel. And, and he knew, listen, he knew the law inside and out. And what we find in Acts 9 is that already Saul was starting to connect the dots. Saul was connecting the dots. Perhaps Stephen's eloquent exposition of, of the Old Testament in Acts 7 uh, before his death was still, was still ringing in Saul's ears. See, Saul had watched Stephen walk this angry crowd through the Old Testament Showing, defending, and proving Christ through the law and the prophets. So you'd already watched Stephen do that at his death. And in a similar manner, Saul begins to defend Jesus from the Scriptures. He begins to defend Jesus from the Scriptures. But church, the other aspect of his defense, listen, was a completely transformed life. The other aspect of his defense was a transformed life. The one who was formerly breathing threats and murder against the church was now preaching and pleading with others to, to recognize and to embrace Jesus so that Jesus could save them. The, the ripple effect of redemption was on display in the life of Saul. In his life, listen, his life was the living proof. And much later in, in verse 29, we see him again defending Christ against the same group of Hellenists that he had been a part of who murdered Stephen. Yeah, he had the word, but he also, but he also had his life. I, I was, few, two, three years ago, I, I served on a jury in a, in a civil trial uh, for, for a lady uh, her and her young son had had been injured in a in a car crash where a young man a young man had had hit them, uh, and and so the lady was suing this young man for running into them. And in the course of the trial, of course the the, the evidence was was presented, testimonies were were, were heard. You, you, we watched his pictures of of the of the crash. Uh, were, were, were put uh, on the screen. We looked at the pictures as, as, as they were explained. But, but the proof for me was watching this lady slip her neck brace 
on and off based on when she was in view of the court. Let's just say it was a very selective wearing of the neck brace. So, so here's what I want to say. It wasn't just about the information presented, church family. It was about the life of the witness. It wasn't just the information that was being presented. It's the life of the witness. Here's the application. Your, your life speaks volumes. Christian, your life speaks volumes. It is either defending the person in the power of Christ or giving others a reason to dismiss him. Let me say that again. Your, your life is either defending the person in the power of Christ or giving others a, a reason to outright dismiss him. Christian, listen. Scripture exhorts us. Be, be ready. As you look at 1 Peter 3, 15. As you look at 2 Timothy 4, 2. Scripture exhorts us to be, be ready in season and out of season. To, to be ready for the, for, to give uh, evidence and, and testimony of the hope that lies within you. So, so here's the deal. You, you need to know this. You need to know the Word. But you need the combo effect. You need, to, you need to be able to open up the Scripture and point to Jesus, but you also need to be able to open up your life and do the same. You need to be able to open up the Scriptures and point to Jesus, but you better be able to open up your life to others and do the same. Now, we got to take a little detour before we get to our third point this morning because there's actually something significant that, that Luke, <coughs> excuse me, does not talk about. And it's important to address something that Luke doesn't mention here in Acts 9. I want you to turn, keep your, keep your place in Acts, and I want you to turn to Galatians 1. Galatians 1, 15 through 18. In the New Testament, Paul says this, Galatians 1, 15 through 18. And I'll wait for you to get there. Paul says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus, again, notice that, again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days. Though, though many have struggled to, to make this sort of jive with Luke's account in Acts 9, I don't see it as problematic. I agree with many, many commentators who see a gap between verse 22 and verse 23. Here's what I mean by that. When verse 23 picks up, what, read what it says. It says what? When many days, look at your neighbor say, many days. Many days. When many days had passed, 
I believe this is after Saul had already gotten away to Arabia in the desert for a period of a few years and subsequently returned to Damascus. So you say, well, what, like, what was Saul doing in Arabia? Was it just like this lonely stint of isolation in the wilderness where he was getting like his doctorate of the desert? Like, what's going on? Possibly, possibly, because here, like, here's the deal. No doubt, Paul, Saul, Paul needed to relearn the Old Testament in light of Christ. There's no doubt. He needed to relearn the Old Testament in light of Christ. He needed to deconstruct and, and rebuild his belief system around the gospel. And so he, he got away. And how significant that God took him to the very Sinai wilderness where both Moses and Elijah... I don't know if y'all are hearing me. Moses and Elijah encountered God and heard the voice of God. In fact, Kent Hughes says there is divine, there is a divine poetry here. At Sinai, Moses received the law. Now at Sinai, Saul learns about grace. Wow. See, no doubt Saul traveled to Arabia to commune with God and to process his new calling. But I, I want you to follow this in light of what we just read about his return trip to Damascus and what went down with them tracking him down, having him having to be lowered through this uh, basket down, down the wall. 2 Corinthians 11.32. See, considering 2 Corinthians 11.32 tells us that King Aretas, you say, who is King Aretas? I'm glad you asked. Great question. He was the Arabian king. He was the Arabian king, was ultimately behind the Damascus plot on Saul's life. And that tells me that Saul, here's what that tells me, tells me that Saul wasn't just biding his time in the desert, right? He wasn't just like pulling a John the Baptist and like popping some locusts, you know, like eating some honey. <laughs> um, while in Arabia, check this out. He continued to proclaim Jesus. He, pro he, he proclaimed Jesus. So much so that the Arabians tracked him to Damascus and they coordinated with the Jewish leaders, verse 23, to shut him up. Think about this. Like Saul, at one point, the, the, the persecutor, the great persecutor of the church. We've already talked about this. He had been led into Damascus at one point, blinded, led by the hand as a child. And then he, here he is leaving. He's exiting Damascus. And dude's being lowered down a wall, like through a window in the wall, like in a basket. How, how humbling. Tony Marita says it was, it was an Indiana Jones type escape. I love it. Church, last thing about this, and then we're going to move to our third point. Saul's exodus to Arabia, I believe, also explains the Jerusalem church's hesitation uh, in, in accepting him. See, if this brother had supposedly been miraculously converted, and then he'd like bounced for three years, they had good reason to be skeptical when he like strolls into town a few years later, Right? They're like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know if we trust you. But like Ananias, and we're not going to spend too much time on this today, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, 
graciously connects Saul to the church and to Peter during his short stint in Jerusalem. This is important, even though Luke doesn't talk about it, we we need to understand what was going on, I believe, between verse 22 and 23. Saul got away to Arabia, but he never stopped proclaiming Jesus. Third thing this morning. Redeemed people make disciples of Jesus. Redeemed people make disciples of Jesus. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, make disciples. disciples. (laughs) Look at your other neighbor and say, make disciples. disciples. There were a few who didn't do it. We're watching. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Verse 25. Check this out. But his disciples, this is after he's back in Damascus, took him by night and led him through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. But his disciples. See, verse 25 can easily slip by undetected unless you're paying attention. Church, don't miss what's going on here. In the midst of declaring Jesus, in the midst of defending Jesus, Saul's also making disciples of Jesus. He was living out the great commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Listen, his stint in Arabia didn't turn him inward to focus on just just me and Jesus. No, it turned him outward. It propelled him outward to help others know and to follow Jesus. That's why years later, when, when Paul, when Saul, who had become Paul, is talking to the church at Thessalonica, he would say this, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. Church fam. This is the goal. That the end game is not just proclamation. It's not just service. It's not just a position or a title in the local church. The end game is to care so much about others that those affections for people drive you to action. The goal is to come alongside others and help them follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and and to help them commit their lives to the mission of Jesus. And if you can, listen, if you can sit in in the church comfortably for years and never challenge to be a disciple maker, you're not at a church, you're at a country club. Y'all hear me now? (laughs) If you can sit in a local church and never be challenged to say, hey, you need to be a disciple maker. Listen, you're you're, you're at a country club. You're not at a church. See, when our... It's like this, when our our family rolls into the library, like we're looking for one thing. We're looking for books. If if I'm pulling into discount tire, like there's one thing that I'm interested in from them. I'm looking looking for tires. Like if if I walk into Kohl's, you know what I'm looking for? I want a brand that was popular eight years ago that other 40 somethings wear. If I'm 
if I'm grabbing Mad Taco, like their GQ is pretty sweet, but like their guacamole and queso, but, but if I'm rolling a Mad Taco, I want, I want tacos. When people roll into a local church, when people roll into a local church, the main thing, the main thing that they should find is disciples of Jesus who are living for the sole purpose of making disciples for Jesus. That's it. I'll close with this. Let me, I'll close with this. As Saul, as Saul exits the stage in Acts 9, and we, don't, we don't hear from him again for another 8 to 10 years. Until, until Barnabas tracks him down in Tarsus uh, to seek out his help with the church of Antioch. And in verse 31, we, we, see, we see this summary verse, which is very, very characteristic of Luke. And he talks about what God is doing in the church. And uh, he uses this Greek word, ekklesia. It's the first time he uses it. Not, it's no longer describing just a single church in Jerusalem. It's the church church. It's everybody who professes and follows Jesus. And see, what what we see is after a tumultuous period of persecution, we see the church experience this season of peace. It's being built up in the fear of the Lord. It's being built up in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church was growing. The gospel was changing lives. It was the ripple effect of redemption. Several years ago, as I I stood for worship at an Acts 29 conference, and I I stood to worship with a group of pastors and their wives and church leaders, I I learned and I I sang this song for the first time by by worship leader Aaron Ivey. We sang this song, Redeem to Redeem. And these were the words that we sang, we have come too far, beloved, to than to sway this path we tread. We have nothing else to boast than the cross where Jesus bled. We've been redeemed to redeem the world around us. We've been loved to love one another. We have been pursued to pursue your kingdom. Oh, redeemed to redeem. Oh, redeemed to To redeem. Church, in Saul's life, there was this ripple effect of redemption. In your life, can you say the same? Can you you imagine? I want you to get this picture. Can you imagine if our local church collectively could echo these words that we have been redeemed to redeem the world around us? Can you imagine what would happen if if that was the collective cry of our hearts to declare Jesus, to defend Jesus, and to make disciples of Jesus? I, I would venture to say that Bryan College Station and even beyond would not be the same. Y'all pray with me this morning.